the closing chapters of this book, there's a repeated refrain, a chorus, there was no king. Four times in four chapters we hear this, there was no king. We first encountered this chorus, or this refrain, last week in chapter 17, where we saw Micah had made this idol, this idol of the real God, but a false version of God. Judges chapter, 16, chapter 17 verse 6 comments on Micah's handmade cre- creativity and it says in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. We saw that last week. If you turn over in the book of Judges to the very last phrase, the very last sentence there in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 21 verse 25, we discover this same phrase again. In those days, Judges 21 verse 25, Israel had no king, everyone did as he saw fit. There was no king in Israel. There was no king for the people of God, which is strange really because this book in its title is not the book of kings, is it? This book in its title is the book of judges. Why not say there was no judge in Israel in those days? Which would be true. The last judge was back in chapter 16. We saw Samson. Is the author making here in this repeated refrain as this book comes to an end, is he making a political point that there was no king, that what Israel needed was a king and once they had a king, everything would be better. And so the problem within Israel is a problem of structure. They need a better system of governance. This is often an issue that comes up today, isn't it? When there's a problem encountered, it's often attributed to a problem of governance, a problem of structure. But I think the author's making a political point here. Is the author making an an historical point? There was no king at this time, but, you know, very soon there would be a king, as we see in the books that follow after the book of Judges, in 1 and 2 Samuel, there was soon to become a king. There's not a king now, but there will soon be a king. Is it a historical point? Well, no, I don't think the author here is making a political point or a historical point. The author is making, as he draws together the threads of this book, he's making a theological point. He's making a point about God as his book comes to the end. The point is that the people of God, the nation of Israel, have rejected God as their king. There is no king, is to say, Israel acts as if no one is ruling over them. Not even the one who has made them. Not even the one who has saved them from Egypt. Not even the one who has brought them into this beautiful promised land. This king, this God, is not ruling over Israel. A Western world is dominated by this idea of of breaking free of authoritarian rule. Uh, We love the idea of self-determination. You don't want anyone to tell you what to do. Being set free from oppressive power structures is considered wholly good. 
whether it be the tyranny of a colonial empire or that of a religious institution or that of societal expectations. We need to break free of these kinds of things. This is the world in which we exist in. Being set free from authority is something that we love in our society. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn called Captain and Conqueror in 1709. He wrote this verse, Let my soul arise and tread the tempter down. My captain leads me forth. Many in England around the 1700s sang this song. They sang a song of Jesus being their captain, their captain of him leading them. But 160 years later, in 1875, many read with resonance the poem of William Henry, Henley called Invictus, where Christ is no longer the captain of the soul. Henley finishes his poem Invictus with the lines, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. In that poem, I think it really represents what we value as a society. We don't want any government. We don't want any person. We don't want even any religion telling us what to do, let alone any God ruling over us. Timothy McVeigh, when he was executed in 2001 for the bombing in Oklahoma, killing 186 people, his closing words in his last statement were, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No one could tell Timothy Vey what to do. No government could tell him what he should do. He's the captain of his soul. And Timothy McVeigh simply acted to the full extent of that conviction. He's the captain of his soul. And so if he thinks it is right for 186 people to die for his own ends and his own political justification, well then he's okay to do that because he's the captain of his soul. Self-determination is something that's, that's very precious to us. But what we're going to see here in Judges chapter 19 is that when something as precious as self-determination, when, when something like self-determination becomes precious, it also becomes precarious. It becomes unstable. Because if God's kingship is rejected, then we define ourselves by ourselves. We can be whoever we want to be. Whatever, you can be whatever you want to be because you're accountable to no one but yourself. And so if God is not to be king, the self becomes king. Behind this is the thinking that I am all and I control all. And so when the self becomes king, you control all, then people are either an aid or an impediment to your control. And more often than not, they're an impediment, they're a competitor, they're an enemy. Because we find that in order for us to become all, 
others have to become nothing. And so this is played out in Judges chapter 19. It's grim. And it's one of the most disturbing sections of the Bible. It's disturbing and it's grim in the way in which people relate to one another because firstly, people have rejected the way that God is to relate to them. Here is an expose. Here is an, uh, an examination of religious hypocrisy worse than you will find even in our media. In Judges chapter 19 and in the following chapters, it's self-determination played out, taken to its logical extreme. And when you take self-determination, when every person is the captain of their own soul, this is what happens. Doing what you want to do. Doing what you want to do seems like the right thing to do. But we see in Judges here that doing what you want to do is not the road to some community of glorious freedom. It's the very fast road to chaos and human cruelty. This is a lesson that we as humans fail to learn. We fail to learn this lesson from history. We fail to learn it from our, even from our own experience. Often uh, it's thought, it was, it was thought at least 50 years ago when the sexual revolution came in that if we could just throw off oppressive notions of constraining people sexually, then this will lead to people's freedom. But if you've seen media reports of the last year or so, it seems to me that women are anything but free in university campuses at the moment. And at the same time, within this passage, we see that it is not simply disturbing, it is preparing us. This section in its depravity is preparing us for a king, a king who will redeem people who are this far fallen. And this king comes and when he comes, he does not come on the back of a warm glow and a lush green backdrop. He comes in the backdrop of government oppression, terrorism, violence and fear. And so let me pray for us as we look at Judges chapter 19. Dear Heavenly Father, you have sent your son to be a light in darkness. And so now, Father, I ask that you would shine your light upon us Illuminate us by your spirit so that we would not only understand the darkness but perhaps more importantly we would understand the light and that your son Jesus would be a brighter light for us today. Amen. Last week we saw that Micah minimised God. He had so reduced God to this statue that he put onto a shelf. God had become an object that he could control even hysterically God had become an object that could be stolen. Because that's a great thing about objects. They never challenge you. Idols never challenge self-determination. In fact, idols encourage self-determination. Why do you pray to an idol of uh, rain? Because you so desire rain for your own benefit. 
But here we see in Judges 19, off the back of Judges chapter 17, when God is objectified, people are as well. We see there in Judges chapter 19, verse 1, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. He took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem. Here is this woman on the run. Last week, what was escaping Micah's clutches? What was running away from him? It was his idol. It was his object. And here now for this Levite, this priest, this man of God, what is running away from him? It's his object. It's his concubine. When God is objectified, people are as well. And what happens in verses 1 and 2 really triggers the whole narrative. You've got this concubine who's running away, and this is how the whole story starts. It triggers the rest of the narrative. And in, in this section in Judges chapter 19, we see two evils. We see the absence of hospitality, and we see the presence of abuse. The presence of abuse jumps out to us. In fact, I shorten the reading because uh, I'm going to deal with it, I hope, in a, in a small way uh, tonight. But hospitality doesn't jump out to us as a great evil, although, as you can see, as you heard that passage read, uh, it's, it's laboured, isn't it? The way this father is asking his son-in-law to stay to stay with him, because hospitality is central to biblical ethics. We see this in Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, Deuteronomy 10, verse 19. In fact, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me water. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. But here, this Levite leaves the hospitality. Here is this welcome given to him. Here is the spread. Here is the house. Here is the shelter. Here is the safety. But this man wants to leave that. He, uh, four days or four or five days is long enough, it seems, for this guy to be with his father-in-law. And so he needs to go. And he heads off into the sunset with his concubine and servant. But... He's cautious. He's cautious not to go to an enemy town. He's cautious not to go to a Gentile town, a Canaanite town, because it's better to go to a safe town where there's people like us, where there's God's people and, assumably, God's rule. And so it's safer to go to the town of Gibeah to find hospitality. But in Gibeah, they don't find hospitality. I remember when Mandy and I were travelling uh, in Greece. We, uh, we didn't know one night where we were to stay. And we were in an incident that was not dissimilar to this. We were in a town square. And I felt very nervous being in the town square, not knowing where we would stay the night. And I can't remember wh how we found where to stay, but we found somewhere to stay. But I was, you know, I was, I was nervous because I felt vulnerable. Well, this is the situation. 
that this man and his concubine are in. They meet an old man there in the square who asks them what they were doing. It seems that this man knows the danger that they're in. He takes them in. He shows them the very hospitality that they were looking for. And then in verse 22, we see how this narrative shifts into some of the darkest and most horrific passages within the scriptures. Uh, Just given the sensitivity of our audience, I'm going to skirt around what you see written here. Because there, pounding on the door, are the men of this city. The men of this city are demanding what they want, not from this woman, the concubine, but from the man. And the owner of this house, this old man who was shown hospitality, he's shown kindness, he can't believe what they are asking for. He says there in verse 22, don't do this, it's so vile, it's, it's so disgraceful. And that is disturbing, that they're surrounding a house could be these men demanding the rape of this other man. And that's exactly what the man says, that this is wicked and this is vile. It's a disturbing demand. But it's not as bad as what happens next. Because there in verse 24, and I want you to just look at the details there, the man instead offers his virgin daughter. It's appalling that these men would demand what they demand, but it's perhaps even more appalling that this man would give into their demand. An horrendous act is undertaken. The cowardice of the men offering the woman and the violence of the men committing the act is horrendous. The man who owns the concubine after the act has taken full course, takes her away thinking that she is alive. But in those eerie words there in verse 28, there is no answer. And the man put her on his donkey and set for home. There the evil continues with the desecration of her body taken to the tribes of Israel to make a point. In this horrendous act of violence, we see the fallout in the subsequent chapters. In chapter 20, a bloody civil war occurs. Full-scale tribal and societal violence is what this act of violence begets. And by modern standards, this is disturbing and repulsive. But it's not just by modern standards. 
Look at chapter 19, verse 30. This is a low point in the history of Israel. Nothing this bad has ever happened, they say. They are just as shocked, I think, as we are to read this. In Hosea Hosea chapter 9 and chapter 10, verse 9, it talks about this event. It talks about this event as one of the deepest shameful periods in the history of Israel. I mean, this is too difficult even to read in church. This is too difficult even just to speak about, given uh, the tender nature of our audience. And perhaps it's difficult to read and to stomach, especially if we know someone who's experienced this kind of violence. I think it's very significant that here at this very low point, this point of grossest evil, the Bible is condemning any form of sexual violence committed against those who are vulnerable. It is true that all sin is equal before God and yet there is good reason for which this is the lowest point of Israel because the harm of this kind of evil is incalculable. And so if we've even experienced just a small fraction of this kind of abuse. The implications of seeing this abuse, of experiencing this kind of abuse, these are things that haunt a person for the rest of their life. You might know people like that. You might be a person like that. And if you are, you need to work through that. You need to work through that with someone who will take you to Jesus. Because a bruised reed he will not break. And he is gentle. And there is restoration and healing in his arms. And at the same time, if you've been a perpetrator of anything remotely like this, there is warning. You ought to run and hide. You ought to run to Jesus and hide in him. Because if you don't have Jesus, what do you have to save you from the wrath of God to come? This is a disturbing event. This is disturbing that it's in the Bible. But why? Why is it? Clearly this is not violence for violence's sake. Why is Judges chapter 19 here? Why is it here in all its horror? What's here because it happened. But yeah, lots of things happened, no doubt, in Israel that were evil. Why is Judges chapter 19 here? Why record this? Well, Judges 19 is here because I think the author is making a point that the people of God have become so desensitised to sin. It is only when sin is presented in such shocking and violent terms that they can begin to see its reality. Doing what is right in your own eyes? Doing what's right in your own eyes? I mean, that's just the way we live. 
doing what is right in your own eyes, is it really that bad? And I think here it's true for us, that here in these shocking pages of the scriptures, here for us is a reminder. The writer, I think, is shocking us that we might see when we act according to our own eyes, that we are on this kind of trajectory, that the sins that we overlook lead to both personal and societal disintegration. They lead to the disintegration of husbands and wives. They lead to the disintegration of fathers and daughters, of men and women, of men and men. The cowardice of this Levite offering a woman instead of himself, the neglect of his concubine, the demand for sex of the men of this town, the desecration of this dead woman's body. Here is the trajectory that men and women are on when we do whatever we want to do, when we do what is right in our eyes. Harvey Weinstein was born in 1952, he's 66 years of age. He's been in the media in the last couple of months. There he was two weeks ago in handcuffs, charged for the way he has abused women. Now, if he was born in 1952 as a young teenager, he would have grown up just at that time when the sexual revolution was beginning to take root. No doubt this changed the way he thought and conceived the world that he was in. It formed the movies he saw, how he thought about the world. And he went on to shape that industry. He went on to be one of the most successful producers in Hollywood. Hollywood, an industry that has sold this lie of sexual liberation now for over 50 years. They've sold the lie that it can be instant and casual and that can be okay. And so in many ways, Harvey Weinstein has acted simply to the full extent of self-determination, of the very logic that he was a part of propagating. Here he was, a king of the production of Hollywood movies, but he really was a man who was king of his life. There was no king in his life. For he was king of his own life. And he is no victim, but he is a product of this industry that he has helped create. And the problem for men like this is not consent. The problem is not consent. The answer is not consent. The problem for Harvey Weinstein, the problem in Israel, the problem in our lives is self-determination. And our world feeds it. Our world feeds our self-empowerment. Our world feeds us determining what we want to do all the time. This is the world that Harvey created. This is the world that we live in. And this is what happens to individuals when people live as though they are their own king 
We're up to what happens to individuals in the outline. At the beginning of chapter 19, unlike the stories as we've seen so often in this book, this woman is not named, and nor is the Levite. As if these people at a specific place and time, although real, could be anyone almost in Israel. That this is the way that not just one Levite acted, this is the way that the Levites acted. This isn't the way simply that one tribe acted, this is how Israel acted. This is what fathers thought, this is how women were treated. And this is a humanity that is completely self-interested. In this narrative, as you see men demanding what they demand upon that door, as you see men offering women, what you see is every person for themselves. As Luther said, this is humanity turned in on itself. And the Levite is a prime example because this woman is not simply his wife, it is his concubine. It is like a second-class wife, a possession, an object to be used either for his own benefit or as a source of income. Either way, she's objectified. And notice that she has no voice. She's a commodity. Because this is what happens. When God is objectified, people are objectified. But it's not simply this Levite. And it's not simply Israel. We do this all the time. We objectify people. Do you spend, do you, do you tend to spend a little more time or just in conversation show a little more interest in the person that you think is going to benefit your agenda? See, too often we treat people like a commodity. We treat people like a means to end. We treat people like a human resource. We use that phrase without even blinking. When we call people, we call them often when we need them. What's disturbing is in chapter 19, verse 27, the man rose in the morning Presumably he slept all night or she lay dead. He wasn't concerned for her. When God is objectified, people are objectified. That's what happens to individuals, but what happens to communities? We see here that um, there in verse 12, as the Levite's going past the Canaanite city, he goes past that Canaanite city because he doesn't consider it to be hospitable or safe. But then they come to the Israelite city, but it is neither hospitable nor safe. No one took them in, verse 20. It's not, verse 15, it's not safe, verse 20. And this whole episode alludes to another episode in Judges sorry, in, in the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 19. It alludes to the events of Sodom and Gomorrah because they're paralleling these events so closely. Back in Genesis chapter 19 are two messengers, or angels who are surrounded, who 
hear the knock of men on the door wanting to have them for themselves. And here, the book of Judges is making a point that Sodom and Gomorrah, this nation, this, sorry, this city that was so abhorrent to God, it was destroyed. Here, the people of God have descended to that very same level. Those who knocked on the door were not those outside the people of God. They were the people of God. They were those who had experienced the blessing of God, the love of God, the safety of God. There, those people commit such heinous acts. And we should mourn. We should mourn because the history of Israel is our history as we are children of promise. But we should do more than mourn. We should hear the warning. This is a warning to us that none of us are immune from the power of sin. We read in Romans chapter 1 to 3 that we have all turned away, that we are all capable of utter evil. And so we see that in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. This passage is a warning to us. It's a warning to us that when we reject God, this isn't simply something that's remote from the way we relate to others. The way we relate to God dramatically and consequently affects the way we relate to others. This is the chaos of rebellion. But in the chaos of rebellion, we know that there is good news. Because we are also reminded that it's the presence, that in the presence of chaos, it does not mean the absence of God. We know that a king entered into chaos. This king came in dark when it was dark. He came in obscurity. He came in grace and truth. He came to bring peace, healing and wholeness, wholeness for people like us. People like us who commit evil. People like us who want to rule our lives our own way. And this king came for us to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to allow us not to live for ourselves, but for him and for his glory. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing.
friends, I'd invite you to take out your prayer books and turn to page 51. Page 51 at the bottom. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we who come to receive the Holy Communion of the body and blood of our Saviour Christ can only come because of his great love for us. For although we are completely undeserving of his love, yet in order to raise us from the darkness of death to everlasting life as God's sons and daughters, our Saviour Christ humbled himself to share our life and to die for us on the cross in remembrance of his death and as a pledge of his love. Jesus instituted this holy sacrament, which we are now to share. But those who would eat the bread and drink the cup of the Lord must examine themselves and amend their lives. They must come with a penitent or a heart full of repentance and steadfast faith. Above all, they must give thanks to God for his love towards us in Christ Jesus. And so you who are truly sorry for your sins, reconciled with others, and determined to lead the new life of joyful obedience to God, draw near with faith and share in this holy sacrament to strengthen and sustain you. But first, let us confess our sins to the Lord our God. Together, almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you made all things and you call everyone to account. With shame we admit that we have sinned against you and what we have thought, said and done, and we deserve your judgment. We turn from our sins and are truly sorry for them. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, Forgive us all that is past. Enable us to serve and please you in new life to your honour and glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has promised to forgive the sins of all who turn to him with faith and repentance, have mercy on us, pardon and free us from all our sins and strengthen us in doing good and keep us in eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Hear what the Apostle Paul says, that the saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners.